This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 28. This is Writing Excuses, Warfare and Weaponry. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. I'm Mahatab. And we are going to talk about weapons. Yay. Uh, This is actually one of my favorite topics because it lets me talk about a hobby horse of mine. Um, (laughs) One of the big dangers with dealing with with fantasy and science fiction, particularly when it comes to warfare, I find is that, well, I don't have the time to become as much an expert as some of my readers in how to go about conducting war. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never been in a war. Uh, This was actually kind of a bit of an issue when I was working on the Wheel of Time books because Robert Jordan had been in war. He, he was, it was in Vietnam. And so the way he wrote warfare was very different from the way I w- write warfare. So uh, my first kind of question to you guys is, how do you approach specifically with this sort of thing, combat, fight scenes, warfare, weapons, doing this right when you know that many of the readers out there are going to be better at this than you are? Um, the the crutch that I I fall back on for getting things wrong is uh, I, I try and make sure that when tactically something might not be a good idea, uh, or might not be the best way to do a thing, um, I am okay with that character having gotten it wrong. Uh, if I'm if I'm trying to write somebody as a you know super soldier who tactically gets everything right, I have to do a whole lot more homework because that's the character that the actual soldiers in my readership will take issue with first. Um, the uh, and, and the second thing is there is an aspect to soldiering that no one who has not soldiered can can really understand the it, it's a blend of adrenaline and esprit de corps and 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 fright and thrill and you know often they talk about it as seeing the elephant um but uh compensating for that um you have to make sure that you have read extensively and listened extensively to people who have had those experiences so that when you describe things you don't describe, especially describing feelings, describing things from a point of view character, you're not doing so in a way that an actual soldier will say, nobody feels that. Why, why would they yeah. feel that? You wrote mm-hmm. that wrong. We, we, we give this answer so much, but that's because it is incredibly true. Talk to someone who knows what they're talking about. You know, I've got uh, a handful of police and uh, soldiers that I will send something to to Alpha or Beta Read for me if I suspect that I've gotten it wrong, which, you know, is most of the time. Um, and it's it's the emotions in battle. It's for me where I often fall down is the tactics. And I'll have hmm. a scene and they'll come back and say, these are the dumbest soldiers ever. Why didn't they do X, Y, and Z? And I realize, oh, there's a procedure that's already in place for this common combat situation. 
that I didn't know anything about. And so having good reference points and uh, and readers who can help out is really valuable. You know, one of the advantages that we have right now that writers didn't have even just 10 years ago is um, a large online community that talks about mm-hmm. historical warfare and battlefields. For someone writing fantasy like me, I can I can go to YouTube and there's a whole ring of them. Some of the ones I, li- I watch are... are um, there's one called Baz Battles, which is just historical battles, kind of shown the tactics that each mm-hmm. um, each general is using and why they were using them. Um, there are people like Lindy Mage and uh, Scor- Scholar Gladiatorius. I'm very bad at saying his uh, his um, uh, his YouTube channel, but they talk about historical battles. There's people like Shadowversity that just will talk about here is how a weapon was used um, and these sorts of things, and they can be really handy. Um, I will sometimes yeah. just go to some of these HEMA historical martial arts uh, things and say, all right, uh, let me see some people fighting sword against knife. And they will have 20 <laughs> bouts of people doing a recreation for you where they are, where they are fighting. That's and fantastic. you can see that just directly 20 times in a row how that battle might play out. Yeah. And it lets you, lets you write it. There, there was a BBC series. I can't remember the name, and I'll try to get it for the liner notes, uh, where there was a historian and his father, who was also a historian, and they were British. And they would just go around to famous sites of battles in that had taken place somewhere in England and say, okay, this is the hill. That's where this guy's army was. That's where this one was. And so you got a really great sense of the tactics and how the terrain affected them. Um, You know, writing for young readers, you don't have to get that technical. You don't have to get all your facts so correct because, you know, you're, you're writing for younger readers and they are not as experienced as, you know, the adult readers. But what I like to do is make it very, very personal. And one of the stories that was set in World War I was uh, War Horse by Michael Merpugo. Um, and that is actually told from the perspective of the horse. But of course, you have the young protagonist who really loves this horse. It's uh, recruited by the army. And then the entire journey is about the horse getting back. But it, the thing is, you could have something as big as war, but you can make it very, very personal to the character, um, the interaction with how it feels to lose something and want it back and then, you know, kind of work that in. So, you know, you're more looking at how it is personal, how that warfare is personally affecting your main character as opposed to just focusing on the tactics or the weaponry. And it, at least for us, I think it's a little bit easier than than writing. And know. it tends to actually work really well, right? <laughs> like uh, one of the questions I want to ask is how you might have a large-scale war happening but keep it personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you just got to it, um, making sure that you're keeping your eye on why is someone really going to get invested in this? And oftentimes the reader's investment is directly tied to how invested they are in one character or a set of characters' um, life through this battle and how they are surviving and what their goals are other than just staying alive? Or is their goal just become, mm-hmm. I want to live through this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my yeah. Uh, grandfather fought in World War II, and he was specifically a supply sergeant. Uh, and so all the stories he would tell us were about, they were not about battles and they were not about you know who won and who lost and who got killed. They were about, we didn't have enough socks, so here's how I found some socks so that our unit could have some. And things like that, which really gave me a a different sense of how personal it can be and the kinds of concerns that soldiers actually have. You right. know, it's like two minutes of fighting and then three weeks of waiting around wishing you had clean socks. Yeah. My grandfather, our, my grandfather fought in uh, the First World War 
Um, he was born in 18... 18- How old are you? He was born in 1899, <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he died in 1968. Um, I never met the man, uh, but he wrote uh, when he was... I think when he was in his 30s, uh, one of his kids said, Dad, you are always harping on these old guys who talk about their Civil War experiences uh, because obviously they've inflated them and whatever. And uh, why why don't you write a book about yours? And so he did. Uh, He wrote, uh, my family, we just call it PFC 1918, because it is his journals from the year 1918 when he enlisted through his experiences in Europe. And he did not see the horrors of World War I that we so often talk about, um, but he got there afterwards. And his descriptions, uh, some of them are very emotional and some of them are very clinical. And having never met the man, I, he doesn't write much in the way of, in the way of emotion, um, but it's been an incredible resource for me uh, because it's a point of view that I don't get from any of the history books. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to eleven grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, Matab, you have a book of the week for us. Yes, I do. And the one that I really, really love, I read it quite recently, though the book is, I think, uh, maybe three or four years old. It's called The Girl with All the Gifts by M.R. Carey. And it's a dystopian, post-apocalyptic science fiction novel. And what I love about this is it's it's basically a, a, a fungus has destroyed most of humanity. And what it does uh, in, in terms of changing humans is once it kind of infects the humans, they turn into cannibals and they just want Mm. to devour the other humans. And this has basically destroyed most of civilization. But just outside London, there is a small little um, place called Beacon. And there is a a lab that has been set up by a scientist who's who's rounded up these kids. They are called hungries because the moment they smell humans, they just want to devour them. And they're studying them to find out a, a cure to it. But what I loved about it is this book needs a lot of expo. But it is it gives you the bits and pieces just as as is needed. So it's a very, very close focus lens. It starts out with Melanie, who is a hungry, and she's in this lab being, you know, tested. And um she just makes a joke like and, and she's put in this wheelchair and strapped up and then 
under the, uh, you know, like a military watch with guns trained on her, this child who's probably about 11 years old is taken into the classroom. And that just poses so many questions. It sets up the narrative and you know you're in good hands. And so the story is about, you know, finding the cure, being attacked by the the, the remaining uh, humans. Uh, and the, the conclusion is just so fabulous. I mean, it's unexpected yet satisfying, which is something you guys always talk about, but this one really demonstrates it. So the girl with all the gifts, M.R. Carey. Excellent. Howard, I wanted to put you on the spot again. I know I've done this a couple times already in this episode, but you write military science fiction um, and you write about what it is like to live as part of a military group. But as far as I know, you've never been in the military. I never have. So um, what... Are there things you know you've gotten wrong that our listeners might get wrong that you have um, been corrected on or that you've learned to do right? Or are there certain things, specifics that have really helped you get this right other than, of course, get some friends? You know, the things that I got wrong, the things that I got wrongest, uh, I got wrong early on, which was me poking fun at my ignorance uh, by having... uh, ranks and uh, forms of battle and whatever, where it, it, I deliberately made it so it did not make sense. And I've stopped doing that because you can really only tell that joke once. Um, and it's a joke that I'm telling on myself. And those aren't funny for very long. Um, research and a large part of what I get right, I got right because I spent 11 years in a dysfunctional corporate environment and a top-down management structure that is dysfunctional is not unlike a military command structure under fire because a lot of those same, you know, hot-headed emotional decisions, uh, lieutenants who are kissing up, uh, people who have... Uh, more authority than they should and less knowledge than they should. All of those things existed in that environment. And I got lucky when I extrapolated them onto the military uh, setting that I had built. Um, but but ultimately, I, I come back to this idea that uh, at least if we're writing about human beings, the more you know about human beings, the more you've seen human beings do human being things, when you write about them in a situation that is not entirely unlike something you've seen before, the odds are you're going to get a lot of it right. One of the things I wanted to bring up in this podcast was talking about fantasy and science fiction extrapolation. And something you were talking about there reminded me of it. Um, You mentioned you you don't make a joke out of getting things wrong. Um, one of the things I do intentionally is kind of along those lines in that when I am building a situation in my fantasy books um, that even my science fiction book that just came out, Skyward, I am looking to have some element of science fiction or fantasy technology or combat that will change the way the game plays out um, dramatically to the point that it removes it far enough from the experience of a lot of the really historical um, readers 
so that they can suspend their disbelief and say, mm-hmm. well, you know, maybe this sort of situation could never exist in our world, but we didn't have shard blades and shard plate, and we weren't, you know, crossing these um, impossible ca- uh, chasms to try and reach this one goal. Um, and in that situation, taking what I know of warfare, applying it, and then adding some wild cards that make it completely into my control really has been helpful for me. Um, I know with Skyward, which is is kind of based on a starship, you know, fighter uh, pilot stuff, that taking it a few steps away from the way that we fight by letting uh, the starships have technology that we don't have allowed some of the fighter pilots that I gave it to to read say, you know what, this works for me. Even though you're doing things we could never do, the fact that I haven't done this thing <laughs> lets me just have fun with yeah. the story. And then, of course, they gave me the things that they had done that I was doing that I was doing wrong mm-hmm. um, so I could get those details right. But that mix is really handy for science fiction and fantasy in specific. Um, anything? Yeah. Yeah, there's just one thing I'd like to see. And I, I'm going to refer to a movie out here, which is the recent one, uh, Crimes of Brindlewald which there was a battle between good and evil. But when there is just too much happening, when there is no focus on a character, the, the, the readers or the audience do not know who to identify with, who to empathize with. And I think that is a mistake, especially in war, because it's huge. There are many people in there. You may take the lens so far back that the audience is not left with anyone to care about. And that makes it, for me, this did not work. So... I would say that, you know, some of the things that you have to remember is though that the the landscape may be extremely wide, try and focus on, on you know, at least a couple of characters, make it personal so that care, you know, readers mm-hmm. can, can feel that, okay, this is something that I want. I, I care about this character and hence I want to go forward. Just coming back to the book that I had recommended, which is The Girl with All the Gifts, Melanie is a hungry and at first she's viewed with suspicion and, you know, you don't empathize with her. But as the story goes on and the lens pulls back, but you're still, it's very much still focused on Melanie and, and a person who was viewed with suspicion all of a sudden has to be viewed with trust. And that little flip makes the story work so much better. So I would say even if you have a wide landscape, give us someone to care about. Yeah. Another author that does this really well, particularly with warfare, is Django Wexler. Uh, he writes historical fantasy, very Napoleonic era you know, with cavalry and infantry forming square and all these things. And I remember one battle in particular where we were in one infantry person's head. And when they all started firing, you know, that kind of weaponry produces so much smoke that all of a sudden they couldn't see what was going on in the rest of the battle. And he didn't change perspective. He didn't give us the broad view. He stayed in the middle of that infantry square that was fully blind and just trying to listen. Are the horses getting close? And it was really effective because it had that one single focus that we could stay with and empathize with. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to call it here and give you guys some homework. I would like you to invent a powerful weapon that is not based on technology. Um, I want you to take this to the side of technology. In fact, make it more powerful than technology in your setting could exist that Technology people understand this is something completely non-understandable. I want you to invent this weapon and see how society adapts to it and try to build a battlefield around the idea of a weapon that no one even really knows what it can do. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production. 
jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.